0: specifically this year in 2016. There are riots in the streets over this stuff. There are literally communist flags flying when Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton come to their meetings. You do realize that with the hammer and the sickle. This is craziness. Why? Why? Is this this just a coincidence? Why? Why? You see, the super-rich government bureaucrats punished the rich industrialists and working class in order to capture the votes, listen, of the victimized, uneducated poor. When in reality, the rich industrialists are the builders of our generation, the creators, the businessmen that the country depends upon to keep the gears of the poorer working class running, right? So it's a little different. We've become more sophisticated as a culture than within Yaakov's day where we're not actually fighting the rich, we're actually fighting the super-rich globalists that are actually trying to enslave the rich and the working class by using their Marxist social rhetoric on the poor, uneducated slaves that are going to destabilise everything. This is the reality that we live in. But these words in the opening verses of Yaakov, they do pertain to us. But we have to now move from a first century and realize the reality of the 21st century. But these words still are powerful and strong if we understand the culture that we live in today. And herein lies the truth, my friends. Herein lies the truth. The super rich governmental elite, the bureaucrats, don't want the poorer working class churning the gears of industry, do they? They want them dependent, they want them disillusioned, and they want them to be Democrats. Because the Democrats will further the goals of the global elite. Dependent, begging for a bowl of porridge at the polls. And that's where we live today. Oh, you can't talk about politics from the pulpit. Yes, you can. Unless you're taking government handouts. You see... Look at verse 5. Listen carefully, my beloved Israelite brothers. Has not Yahuwah chosen the poor of this world, rich in emunah, faith, and heirs of the malchut, kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor. Is it not rich men that oppress you? And drag you before their beamer of mishpat, their judgment seat. Do they not blaspheme the name worthy by which you are called? You see, Yahuwah hasn't only chosen the poor. Of course the rich can be redeemed also. There isn't some special merit to being poor either. It's just that the poor were chosen on the basis of Yahuwah's rachamin, his grace. Because of Yahweh's rachamim, his grace, many more of the poor are chosen than the rich. And this is true. Many more of the, cho- of the poor are chosen than the rich. Just because you may be in poverty and at a physical disadvantage, you're not spiritually disadvantaged compared to the rich. It's an even playing field because Yahuwah calls us all to come by the same requirement. Emunah, faith. And faith is not just adhering to a set of beliefs. You see, the way the rich were treating the community of faith in Yaakov's time was the same way that Esaitan is ruling over his subjects. They were exploiting them. Exploiting the poor, exploiting the needy. And today, they're exploited with government handouts procuring their vote for the Democratic Party of Dependence. Are they not? They're exploiting them through handouts, making them dependent. You see, we've got more sophisticated, but if you peel the veneer back of our Western democracy, it's Marxist socialism, where they are actually trying to enslave you. And the rich and the poor, it's really the super-rich globalist elite that are the rich, that are enslaving the rich and the working class by using those that join the Marxist revolution to become dependent Democrats at the polling stage. It's very sophisticated, but if you start examining it in 2016, as we prepare for presidential elections, you see it, and it is exploding on the streets. Exploding on the streets. In Yakov's day, the rich were using the court's... To exploit the poor. And today the courts are set up for the sluggard to exploit the workers with lawyers working on contingent for the sluggard. While the workers have to risk everything to fight fraudulent lawsuits and government bureaucracy. And I find myself in this very position. In this very position. And you speak to the lawyers and they say the law isn't about justice. The law is about the law. And I speak to my lawyers and and they say to me, Matthew, your principles, your morals, and your sense of justice, that is going to cost you money. I'm like, what? What? You have high principles and you're guided by strict morals. That is very expensive. What? Because compromise and accepting lies and exploitation is cheap and will settle. But, but what about truth and right? Well, that's expensive. And that's risky. I said, well, you obviously don't know me because I take (laughs) risks. I said, I'll take the risks because I'm not going to be exploited and compromised because then you're playing into this whole thing that we're talking about right now. Look at verse 8. If you fulfill the royal Torah... According to the katuv, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you do well. The royal law. The royal law according to scripture. Now, royal, well, that's kingly. The Greek word order here is very telling. The Greek word order points us to exactly, we don't have to guess, it points us to exactly where Yaakov is is referencing and pulling it from. And where is he pulling this royal law from? A law ye are fulfilling royally or kingly is the word order that comes across right here in the language. The only Torah or law that was kingly was Malki. Was it not? It was kingly in respect to persons, plural, not a person David singular we are talking to persons plural right so now we can see that this was a kingly law in respect to persons not a person fulfilling it it was prior then to Exodus 24 verse 12 look at Exodus Shemot 19 verse 6 this is where he gets it from and you We're talking now plural, not singular, and you shall be to me a malchut or koanim, a kingdom of priests, a kadosh, holy nation. That's Kingdom Torah. That's kingdom royal law. This is what we're talking about. This is the true faith that was once delivered to the saints. This is the message, the clarion call to this last generation before the industrial bureaucrats literally try to enslave it and implode this very life and culture that we live in. And Yahuwah is using this message to pull his people out. He really is. And we're seeing it globally now. It's taken off exponentially, and it is truly amazing. People either, or they fight you tooth and nail, and are literally blind, and then they go into the Zio-Rabbinicalism. It's craziness. It's craziness. The Greek word order here establishes that the background for Yaakov's teaching is the book of the covenant which provided the Torah's true standard of Zadokha, righteousness, as lived by the patriarchs and made anew by Yahusha's death and ratification of the Malkitzedic priesthoods, this wonderful, beautiful royal law. This is covenant Torah. Genesis one one all the way through Exodus twenty four eleven. And yes, you do, do see some dovetailing, but it is basically this is the whole law. We have the Torah of the patriarchs that has been renewed and placed upon the heart of believers. Jeremiah thirty-one verse 31. And this is all based upon that impending change that was spoken of in Genesis Bereshit 49, brought about by the king of kings, Melech HaMalachim. The royal law extends beyond the book of the law. It's new in its ability to work from the inside out, just like the master works in us, does he not? He works to clean us from the inside out. And the royal law that is kingly works on the holy Malki nation from the inside out. And this is supernatural. Verse 9. But if you show partiality among men, you commit sin and are convicted by the Torah as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the entire Torah and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of it all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not murder. Now, even if you commit no adultery, yet if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the Torah. And this is it. I look back and I look into the scriptures and I see that our hope is that we will be all standing on a sea of techelet, a sea of glass. Isn't that it? You see, the Torah, my friends, it is not a heap of stones. I mean, the Hebrew roots movement and the Messianic movement, they think it's a heap of stones. Where you can just come up and you can kind of pick a stone off of the heap. And the heap, which is Torah, stays intact. Oh yeah, I'll take this commandment. I like this commandment. Oh yeah, I'll take this stone. And no, 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 no. You see, the Torah isn't a heap of stones where you can pick and choose your theology on what commandments you like. Oh yes, we'll do. But no, we won't do those because the temple hasn't built, been built yet. But oh yeah, we'll do the. We'll take that. Oh, I like that stone. The Torah isn't a heap of stone. It is a glass. And if you don't do it all, as it has been rightly divided, then it will crack and it will craze and it will break. You cannot pick and choose this heap of stones that we see in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement. You see, you can't pick one or two, and the heap remain intact. It just does not work. That is the Luciferic mind that has infiltrated the messianic movement. It's a sheet of glass, Revelation 5. Revelation 4, verse 6, excuse me. Throw one stone at that sheet of glass, and what will happen? It will begin to crack and it will begin to craze and it will fragment the whole thing. You can't pick and choose Torah commandments willy-nilly depending on current events and your rabbinic zio-eschatology. That doesn't work. It's not a heap of stones. A break at one point will not be contained The cracking and the crazing will spread over your entire so-called Torah observant lifestyle. It will fall apart. A Torah with no book of the covenant, no book of the law distinction cracks and crazes without division. What are you going to do with a Melchizedek high priest with your pile of stones of Torah? It's not going to work. If there is no division between the book of the law and the book of the covenant and you put into that the book of Hebrews and that Yahushua is your Melchizedek, your glass of undivided Torah will crack and craze because... Genesis 1.1 1, 1, all the way to Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy, does not allow you to have a Melchizedek high priest. You can't pick and choose. It's not a pile of stones. You insert Yahusha as the high priest... According to Malkit in an undivided Torah with no distinction between book of the law and book of the covenant, they're synonymous, which is the status quo teaching, then it cracks and crazes the whole thing. The only way Yahushua can be your high priest after the order of Melchizedek is if you rightly divide the book of the covenant and the book of the law, Torah, and that you are now returned to the book of the covenant, which is Melchizedek. It's the only way. And it does not crack and it does not craze. But you see, they won't teach you that because they want you to pick and choose commandments from a pile of stones. It is literally a Luciferic, rabbinical Zionism. And it is really, really prevalent. It's amazing. Let's continue on. You see, in fact, as we look at this verse, you'll find that many Messianic teachers actually expose their rabbinic mindset with this verse. They make statements like this, quote, He stumbles only in one point, meaning in one simple thing there are 613 commandments this person somehow succeeds in keeping 612 where 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 does it say there's 613 commandments How many Messianic and Hebrew roots teachers and rabbis waffle on about the 613 commandments of Torah? There aren't 613 commandments of Torah. There's never been 613 commandments. It is a Luciferic rabbinic lie. Now, if you're teaching that as truth, then what else are you teaching as truth that's a lie? many of this so called 613 if you look at it it's repeats and repeats and different rabbinical interpretations of the commandments no the numbers yeah it's yeah it's 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 crazy So if somebody's standing up in front of you saying something like that, then what else are they saying that's not true? You see, it just takes, again, peeling back that veneer. Let's look at verse 12. You just have to be careful with those that are perpetrating and circulating rabbinic lies and myths. Because if they're doing that about that, what else are they doing? They're most probably going to keep the status quo with everything. Is it safe? Verse 12. So act and do as those that shall be judged by the Torah of liberty. For he shall have mishpat without rachamin, judgment without mercy. To him that has shown no rachamin, no mercy. For you exalt yourselves by desiring rachamin, mercy instead of mishpat, judgment. I'd like to read this from the um Revised Standard Version, because they chose to render the Greek here, Dio Nomo eleuthrias, which should be translated by the law of liberty. They willfully and defiantly decided to translate that as under the law of liberty. You're, you're under the law of liberty. Can you see the theological prejudices that we're up against? I mean, we truly are. I mean, the revised standard version, it's just outrageous. But again, this is willful, defiant sin. And I had a little bit of a a disagreement with my wife before I came here. It wasn't heated. We were in the kitchen and we were talking. And I said, honey, do, do you really believe that these pastors in the institutionalized church, that they don't know what they're doing? I said, it's willful and defiant. They know what they're doing. I had the same choices to make. I made a different choice. But yes, I mean, maybe the lay people don't. And that's us. I include all of us, myself included. But those that come from the seminaries, the cemeteries, they know. They know. <laughs> it's just that it's not important because we can see here with the revised standard version they choose to translate the greek which is dia nomo eleutherias which is by the law of liberty as under you are under the law of liberty you see, this is willful, defiant sin. They know what they're doing because if under the law of liberty was true, we'd find a whole different Greek phrase entirely and it would be And that's absent from all of the Greek manuscripts. So why would you put that in there? It's, it's totally out. It's a different structure of the Greek totally. But you see... We would never have checked that 20 years ago. And I used to love this in the church. In the original Greek. How many of you have heard that? <laughs> there is no original Greek. Well, <laughs> in the original Hebrew, there is no, we, see, we hear that. In the original Hebrew, there is no original Hebrew. Okay? Oh, I lo- oh, well, in the original Greek. What, the one, what, the copy you have at home? Because nobody else on the planet's got any original Greek. (laughs) But it sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, this guy must know what he's talking about. Don't want to question him. Crazy stuff, isn't it? What they're doing in the Revised Standard Version here is supplanting and replacing the rightful place of covenant Torah in the hearts and minds of born-again believers for a syncretized pagan faith that is powerless to free you from the shackles of this world order. The correct view of under the law in contrast to under grace is the change brought about by the death of Messiah, from under the book of the law and a return to being under the book of the covenant. That would be an incorrect interpretation. We are new covenant Melchizedek Torah believers. The law of liberty. Well, what is this law of liberty then? I mean, let's, let's really see. What is this law of liberty? Now this is a particular expression and it's found only here and in chapter 1 verse 25. And it refers to the teaching and instruction of Yahuwah that sets a person at liberty. But what does the teaching and instruction of Yahuwah set us at liberty from? It sets us at liberty from curses and condemnation. And where do we find the curses? In the book of the law. There are no curses, plural, in the book of the covenant. There is one limited family curse. That you are to honor your Abba and your Ema. But there is no plural curses. All of the curses are found in the book of the law, which you are then at liberty from so that you can return to covenant Torah it's amazing it's amazing you see the condemnation is contained within the book of the law the book of the covenant is made anew and it's what liberates Israel not from being under the law as a whole because that's what the institutionalized church would have you believe and that would leave you stranded lawless right Heavens forbid, if you're lawless, then you're out of covenant fidelity. You don't want to be lawless. Certainly not. But it liberates you from the imposed, not agreed to book of the law, where all of the curses are contained, thereby providing you freedom from the Levitical interpretation of the book of the law, which is the schoolmaster and the tutor. What many fail to realize is the seriousness of this. Because the future judgment, the future judgment will be on the basis of our conformity to the book of the covenant Torah. That's what the future judgment will be based upon are conformity to the book of the covenant Torah, the Torah that Messiah has established through his death penalty payment, not conformity to the rabbinic-messianic hybrid Torah, which is cracked and crazed, and the whole thing will break upon inspection from the Zedek. Look at verse 12. So act and do as those that shall be judged by the Torah of liberty. The law of liberty. I, yeah, I just will. Do you mind if I, I'm talking about, I'm going to. i got to talk to you about something. It's a little bit off par, but. Can I talk to you about the Statue of Liberty for a little bit? I mean, we're talking about liberty, but the, it's going—I can tie it all in. Let's do it. It's just, it just—I just think it's important. I know we're talking about the law of liberty, but we're talking, about, and then the Statue of Liberty's coming to mind. But we, we're in 2006, and things are going crazy. I mean, who's gone to Target lately? Right? I mean, we've got the whole transgender issue. I've got to talk about it. Do you mind? Yeah, all right, it won't take me long, but I think it's important. And we're talking about the law of liberty, and it's really all this transgender business. It's tied to liberty, and it's tied to the Statue of Liberty. And you're like, what is he talking about? Now, what happens? Think about this. What happens what we, our war is not against flesh and blood, but principalities. What happens if you bring a graven image into your house? What happens if you do that? You come into legal alignment with it, and you then become familiar with it. In fact, what you have is a kinship, or what we call a familiar spirit within your home right that's why we are admonished commanded not to do this what happens then if you choose to bring it into your nation and have it be the gatekeeper over the nation no consequences will you escape its influence Or will there be consequences that will ripple down through the generations? I believe, from my reading of Scripture, that there will be consequences that will ripple down through the generations. I mean, George Washington. George Washington stated in writing that the Illuminati still existed in his time. JFK Was killed as he began to speak about the Illuminati openly. 2016, 2017, its end game is upon us. And if you don't think the transgender agenda is all part of it, then you're misguided and not paying attention. I mean, supposedly, the Statue of Liberty was a gift from the French. No, it wasn't. He was, like, trying to flog this thing to the bloody Egyptians. They didn't want it. He had to, like, try and round up money and donations to get it here. But it was originally, it was destined for Egypt. But the Egyptians didn't even want it. It wasn't a gift. Oh, it's all about freedom. It's a beacon of hope of democracy and a light and liberty. But it's not. But it's not. In fact, it's all got this sacred geometry. If you actually were to look at the measurements of the Statue of Liberty, you'll find there's always this extra inch that appears, whether it's the crown Whether it's the torch, whether it's its height, whether it's the column, there's always this extra inch that appears. Why the extra inch? It's satanic sacred geometry because this extra inch makes everything divisible by seven. This is satanic numerology that we're dealing with because it was the Freemasons and the Illuminati, the skull and bones, three men that were actually orchestrated and involved in this very structure. They were all part of the Illuminati. Of course, these builders were entrenched in the skull and bones. Now, many of people have heard of the sculptor, the Frenchman Frederick Bartholdi. For many people don't realize it was the old Eiffel Tower bloke, before he was famous with the Eiffel Tower, that actually did the skeleton within the Statue of Liberty, Gustav Eiffel. That was one of his works before the Eiffel Tower. And then it was the man that designed the platform was Richard Hunt. They were all masons. They were all Illuminati and all skull and bones. So, yes, this sacred geometry is a big part of it. And you look and you see this torch, but, oh, it's the light and the beacon of hope. Well, Isaiah 14 tells us something different, does it not? Who is the illuminated one? Chael in the Hebrew. Chael, that the Latin Vulgate decided to translate as Lucifer. Chael, the light bearer, Chael, Chael, the light bearer. And where is this statue, Lady of Liberty? She, he, she, he has got this watchful eye over the harbor of New York. Helios, the all-seeing eye. Look at the Colossus of Rome. With the seven rays of the sun or the seven horns. What is that all about? The seven horns or the seven rays, these all represent, and this is where we're going, the seven liberal arts and sciences the seven liberal arts and sciences. This is the idol, the graven image that has been brought into the nation exactly 130 years ago to the day, to the year. 130, you may ask. Well, there was the Paris attacks. Yeah, exactly 130 days later, there's the Brussels... Brussels attacks. I mean, this appears, we're dealing with satanic Illuminati globalists where numbers mean everything to them. Lady Liberty. No, Leo Liberty. It's not even a chick. It's a bloke. Look at the mask. Look at pictures of the mask before they put it on with their long hair and the robes. Because, in fact, Leo Liberty is something entirely different. And you think it's a coincidence that the transgender agenda is upon us exactly 130 years later? Too You see, Leo Liberty is in fact Attis. And many of you are like, well, who's Attis? Well, Attis, my friends, was the priest of Zeus and Ishtar, the son of a hermaphrodite. Attis was the son of of a hermaphrodite, agitas. Attis self-mutilated himself. Children, leave the room. Attis self-mutilated himself by cutting off his genitals. And he became a cross-dressing, transgender consort of Sybil, his mother-lover. Later, the king of Pessinos, which was Midas, followed suit, cutting off his genitals, and the transgender agenda spread throughout the kingdom. True enlightenment from the torch and rays of Attis. You see, Lady Liberty is Leo Liberty. In fact, Attis, with the Seven Spikes, The transgender agenda was brought in to watch over this nation 130 years ago. Attis, the son of a hermaphrodite, who cut off his meat and two veg. Can you say that? But he did. And then all of the priests thereafter, and it spread to the nations. The transgender agenda has been keeping its watchful eye on this nation because it's always been part of the Illuminati agenda. And we see it now from Pennsylvania Avenue all the way down into your local Target. Give me a sec. Into your local Target stores. This is some crazy stuff. You see, this is what the truth is. Look and do your research on Attis. Look at him. Son of a hermaphrodite, self mutilated, that then went on to the whole kingdom went on to the whole agenda of his nation and ruling. You see, this transgender priest of a hermaphrodite who cut off his genitals has been illuminating Americans with the transgender agenda for 130 years. And you don't think it's going to have any consequences? And we've got this torch. What what is the torch? It's the torch of Prometheus the torch of Prometheus. And who is Prometheus? Satan. And what did Prometheus do? He stole the fire from the gods, giving it to man, giving man their knowledge. Oh, man is so smart nowadays, isn't he? He thinks he knows what's best with the human body. And this is the world that we live in today. But then if we look at Prometheus... And you do the account and you read about Prometheus and what happened. He stole the fire from the gods and gave it to man so that man would be illuminated. But now we've got this American eagle. Well, what was the eagle in the story in the account of Prometheus? The American eagle, my friends, will swoop down and eat the liver out of those he watches over the American people. That's what happened. And what does Scripture say about that? Mishle, Proverbs 7, verse 1. With her many words, oh yes, this transgender agenda, she caused him to yield. With a flattering of her lips, she seduces him. He goes after her immediately as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the prison until a dart strikes through his liver. And a bird rushing to the trap that did not know it would take away his life. You see, Yahuwah's word says that the foolish man who lusts after women and the transgender agenda, who's seduced by this whole agenda, will be dying, will die by being struck in the liver. It's a warning against the transgender agenda. The liver eliminates waste. And the liver eliminates toxins. And if you're inviting this waste and this toxin into your house, then what do you expect to come your way? This is very serious. And I know I totally went off there. And we're supposed to be talking about the law of liberty. But I think it's important, though. Because they want you to believe, this is, oh, this is the beacon of hope and light and liberty, but it's something totally different. Did you have something you wanted to add? Speaking the truth, if it offends people, they want to kill you rather than the truth. What is up is down and what is black as white. And even now they're saying what is male is really female and what is female is male. And you speak truth, physiology, you speak truth, what it really physically is, and you're hated as, judge, as being judgmental. Look at verse 14. Let's get back into the text, little sidebar there. Quite a big sidebar, excuse me. Two, chapter two, verse 14. What does it profit, my Israelite brothers, if a man says he has emunah faith and not mitzvot? Can emunah, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart, be in shalom. May you be warm. May you be filled. But you give them not those things that are needful to the body. What use is it? Even so, emunah, faith, if it has not mitzvot, work, it is dead being alone. You see, faith is tested by its production of works. That's how faith is tested, by its production of works. Are Yaakov Yaakov James here? And Rav Shaliak Shaul, the Apostle Paul, are they at odds? Martin Luther thought that they were, but no, they're not at odds. They're not in conflict here at all. You see, Luther and the institutionalized church would have you believe that they are at odds, but they're not. They just don't understand the distinctions of what they are addressing, and I want to just address those so that you can see that there is no conflict here between James and Paul. It's not an issue of contradiction, but rather of contrasts. And we will see there's five contrasts between Paul and James in these five particular areas. Let's have a look at these contrasts in five particular areas between James, Yaakov, and Paul, Rav Sholiak, Shaol. Number one. The situation. What do I mean? Paul, Shaul, was speaking on the way of being justified, the way of being justified, and he was countering legalism. Yaakov is speaking on the life of the justified, and he is countering lawlessness. There's your distinction. Number two, The meaning of the term works. For Shaul, it was the works of the book of the law, Galatians 3.10. For Yaakov, it's the works of faith and love. Yes. You see, they're talking about two different things. Paul is talking about the works of the book of the law, yet James is talking about the works of faith and love. They're works, are they not? Yes. You have to work at loving people. You do. Number three, the meaning of justification. For Shaul, it means acquittal, which was a Roman. It was a legal term. It was forensic, meaning it would hold up to close inspection, forensic inspection in nature. But for Yaakov, it means vindication, the justification of one's profession of faith. To lay claim to faith, you must justify it, right? To Yaakov, he's saying, if you're going to say you've got faith, then you've got to justify that you've got faith by producing works. Whereas Paul is talking about forensic, he's looking at it differently. They're not in conflict here. Number four, the intention. Shaul was contrasting two opposing ways of salvation. Salvation by works or salvation by grace through faith. Yaakov's intent was to contrast two kinds of faith. A living faith and a dead faith. See the distinctions. You see, so the institutionalized church and Martin Luther, they couldn't understand that what they were addressing here are different things. Using the same common language, but they are addressing different things. If you think that James is talking about what Shaul is talking about, you're wrong. And if you think that Shaul is talking about what James is talking about, you're wrong. And you're going to be very confused like Martin Luther, and you're going to add the book of Yaakov as an appendix to the back of your Bible. Right? Wrong. And finally, number five, the place of works. Shaul argues against works as a matter and means of justification. And Yaakov argues in favor of works in the lives of those that are already justified. I'm already justified. Therefore, I do good works you see the difference? Harmony. I love the harmony of Scripture, but you have to peel back the religious veneer. Now, there's six distinctions further in this homily of Yaakov. Number one, Yaakov is not salvation-oriented. The book of James is not theological. I call it boots on the ground. It's boots on the ground. It's about getting down into the dirt and walking out your faith, right? It's not a highbrow theological, the composition of Messiah, Christology. No, that's where Shaul was. But James, he was dealing with mud in the assembly, boots on the ground. And his faith would then be demonstrated by good works within the midst of the believers. Number two, with Shaul... The antithesis is between faith and works. With Yaakov, it's between dead faith and living faith. Dead faith and living faith. And number three, Yaakov is geared toward a practical purpose, whereas Shaul is geared towards a theological doctrinal purpose. That's the difference and distinction there. Number four, for Yaakov, a faith that saves... Well, it's a faith that works, right? Number five, for Yaakov, a living faith authenticates itself in the production of works. And these works are defined in chapter 2, verse 8 and 12. Malki, Zedek, Book of the Covenant, Royal Torah. That's kingly, and it sets one at Torah liberty. And number six, faith and works are two opposing elements insofar as the means to salvation, but they're both involved in salvation. It's about getting the order right. First, you have faith. That's the means of salvation. And then second comes works, which is the evidence of salvation, that's what Matthew seven twenty one is all about. Verse eighteen, we get back into the text, but I think it was important just to spend that little bit of time addressing the fact that Paul and Yaakov, James are not in conflict; that they are approaching this from different perspectives, using the same language, addressing different ideas. One is theological. And one is practical. You have to understand that. Otherwise, you'll end up as a Luther What do they call them? A Lutheran? A Lutheran, yes, a Lutheran. Verse 18. Yes, a man may say, you have emunah, faith, and I have mitzvot, works, Show me your emunah without your mitzvot, your faith without your works, and I will show you my emunah by my mitzvot. You believe that there is Yahuwah Echad. Well, you do well. But even the Shadim believe that also. And they tremble. Believing that Elohim is one is not sufficient. It is not sufficient. Having a correct theology has no practical value if it doesn't produce works, right? Right? Believing in the one true Elohim isn't enough. And we live in this institutionalized Christian world where believing in the one Elohim is apparently enough. But it's not. The scriptures show that to be untrue. It is not enough. Faith without works is a barren child, a barren woman producing no offspring. You see, the existence of faith cannot be proven without works because faith is intangible, it's invisible, it's something that is not seen. It can only be proven by your works. Shemot chapter 5 verse 2. I'm reminded of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, Who is Yahuwah that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahuwah, nor will I let Israel go. You see, even Pharaoh understood that knowing equates to obeying look at that verse exodus 5 verse 2 even pharaoh knew that knowing equates to obeying matthew 7 21 pharaoh confessed that he was a sinner listen pharaoh confessed that he was a sinner and he declared that Yahweh was righteous well that sounds like a recipe to salvation doesn't he doesn't it Pharaoh confessed he was a sinner and he declared that Yahuwah was righteous. Well, that's the recipe for salvation. That's what the gospel guy would tell you from Calvary Chapel downtown. He's got their little bloody sandwich board out there harassing people. He had Frosty the Snowman out there this week. I'm like, oh, you don't want to talk to me about that. I had to cross the road. I'm like, if I get into this, I'm not going to go to work and most probably the cops are going to be called, and it's going to go sideways from here. And then I ran into Ronald, and I was like, if me and Ronald go for it, I mean, it's all over. I saw Ronald looking at Frosty, too, I'm sure. Oh, he does? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But Pharaoh, Shemot, Exodus 5, 2, Shemet Pharaoh... Understood that obeying, knowing equates to obeying. Pharaoh confessed that he was a sinner. He declared that Yahweh was righteous. You do realize that this is more than what occurs at the average Sunday altar call, don't you? This is more than what occurs at the average Sunday altar call. Confessing sin and declaring the true name of Yahweh as righteous. That's more than what happens on a Sunday altar call. They don't even know the true name of Yahuwah, and they don't confess their sin, and they don't declare the true name of Yahuwah righteous. So Exodus 5, 2, that's more than what happens on a Sunday altar call. How about Shemot 9, verse 27? And Pharaoh sent and called for Moshe and Ahron, and he said to them, I have sinned. This time, Yahuwah is Zadik. Yahuwah is righteous, and my people and I, we are wicked. Oh, it sounds like a repentant sinner that's come to salvation. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Right? (laughs) Wrong! (laughs) (laughs) Pharaoh even asked to be forgiven of sin, but only once. Only once. He wants the one-time deal, does he not? And how many times... I've had this conversation with Christians. Well, I, I confess my sin. Well, when? What, 25 years ago? Why well, I'm done. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. Oh, Okay. That was the one time. I'm not doing it again. It was hard enough the first time. right? I've had these conversations. I really have. You're laughing, but it's true. That's why I don't have many friends. It's all okay if we keep it superficial, but once Matthew starts getting into the world, we're out of here. He's a real believer. Really believes this stuff. Yeah, I do. I really do. I'm serious about it. And I go to the scripture and I see these things. What did Pharaoh want? He wanted the get out of death free card. That's what Pharaoh wanted. He wanted the get out of death free card. The institutionalized church is preaching the faith of Pharaoh, children. And we are all children. And that's what we sat under. They are preaching the faith of Pharaoh. It's the gospel of Pharaoh. It's another gospel. I'm not making this stuff up. I wish I were, but I'm not. Exodus 10, verse 16. Then Pharaoh called for Moshe and Aaron in haste, and he said, I have sinned against Yahuwah, your Elohim, and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, only this once, and make tefillah, to Yahuwah, your Elohim, that he may take away from me this death. He wanted the death, get out of death, free card. He only wanted to confess his sin just that one time. Look at this. This is the recipe of the gospel of Pharaoh. What's the one thing? Going back to Yaakov, what's the one thing that Pharaoh could not do? The one thing that Pharaoh could not do is he could not authenticate his faith. He couldn't obey. He could not obey. It was not in him. He could not keep the commandments of Yahuwah. He simply couldn't. It's works that substantiate the claim of faith. And Pharaoh didn't have it, did he? You see how sobering this is? Because without works, you have the faith of Pharaoh. And that's not going to end well. Verse 20. But will you know, O vain man, that Emunah without mitzvot says, dead as Pharaoh? Right, I ad libbed a bit, but you get my point. Verse 21. Was not Avraham our Abba made Zadig by mitzvot? when he had offered Yitzhak, his son, upon the altar. And here we find the very Jewish phrase, Avraham avenue Avraham Avinu. Verse 22. Do you see how Emunah worked with his mitzvot? And by mitzvot was his Emunah made perfect. And the katuv, the scriptures were fulfilled, which said, Avraham believed Yahuwah, and it was counted to him as Zedekah, and he was called the Haver, the friend of yahweh you see abraham was already a believer in genesis 12 this was the inception point of the malchizadek covenant meaning his justification was then verified by yahweh when when was his justification verified by yahweh genesis 15 when he did works correct? You see, the covenant between the pieces demonstrated his works, that salvation is wrapped up within the covenants of promise. The only way to access these covenants of promise is by faith in the son's death penalty payment of Genesis 15, which will lead into the production of covenant works. The zedek Torah contained in the fullness of of Genesis 12. You see, we have to do a reverse thread. For Abraham, he was justified and he met Yahweh in Genesis 12. And then his justification was demonstrated by his works in Genesis 15. But for us, because of the covenant that was broken, we have to come through the Son and his death penalty payment of Genesis 15 by faith. And then we produce works which connect us reverse thread back to the Genesis 12 inception point of our faith. Do you see that? It's amazing. Avraham walked it one way, Genesis 12 to 15. Genesis 15 was the production of his works that showed that he truly had faith. But because the death and the covenant was broken, Yahushua has to pay the Genesis 15 death penalty position. Do you believe in that? Well, if you believe in that, then you are justified. But now you have to do the covenant, malchizedek Torah of works to really get back to the inception point of the covenants of promise, reverse thread of Genesis 12. That's the true faith that Yaakov is talking about, the law of liberty, the royal law. That's upon us in this generation that he can pull us out of this crazy, sick, and perverted world that we live in. Could you l'chaim me right here? Yeah. Thank you very much. Works aren't the means of justification, but they are the evidence of justification. The works that Yaakov speaks of isn't some denominational works like being the gospel guy, downtown, or knocking on doors like Prince and the JWs. That would have been his last band, by the way, you know. Can you imagine opening your door and there's like Prince and a bunch of Jehovah Witnesses? That would be some crazy stuff, right? All dressed in purple. Most probably had like a purple leather bound scriptures. Purple, I mean like, whoa. Right? But he would go door knocking with the JWs. You're sitting down for your dinner with the kids, got a cup of tea on, you go to the door and there's bloody Prince there trying to, you know, get some apocalypse into you. That would freak me right out, wouldn't it? <laughs> Little midget Oh, it's crazy stuff. We're seeing here That it's works that are rooted in Torah covenant. That's what we're talking about. That's the Torah of Avraham. The Sabbath, the feasts, the dietary requirements, the love of thy neighbor, the control of the tongue, the removal of leaven from within. That's the true works. Verse 24. You see how then... That by mitzvot, a man is made tzaddik. By works, a man is made righteous. And not by emunah, faith only. And now we get on to verse 25. I've got to admit, I'm a little bit nervous about this. I am, because I'm going to tell you the, the truth. But I read verse 25, and I really believe that we've come to a point in our geopolitical history I really do, where believers may be asked. Yeah, I'll just say it anyway. Be- believers, I really do believe we may be asked to perform an act of treason against the people of the land by which they inhabit. I mean, do you and I have that kind of faith? Think about it. Look at verse 25 before I go on. Likewise also was not Rehab, the harlot made Zadik righteous by mitzvot when she had received the spies and had sent them out by another way. I mean, true faith. I mean, true faith. The kind of faith that will have you recorded in the hall of faith like Rehab led Rahab to an act of treason. She committed an act of treason against her own people. Did she not? That's the kind of faith that is going to be required of us. If you want to get into the hall of faith, an act of treason against the Canaanites of Jericho. Did she not? She did. People don't realize that. But look at our world today. Look at our world. Look at our country. Look at our government. I mean, if you're a soldier, or if you're in law enforcement, would you fire upon a civilian population that refuses to bow the knee to Hillary? Would you? If you're in healthcare, will you force vaccinate? Will you confine and kill the unborn? Will you do that? If you're a teacher... Of the Scriptures, will you adulterate Romans 13 to have your flock subservient to the New World Order government? Will you adulterate the Scriptures so that they'll bow the knee to the government? Will you counsel the saints to align with the New World Zio elite? Will you do that? Many are. Many are. This is serious. Look at verse 25. If not, then like Rahab... You might have to choose what land you belong to. Well, what land do you belong to? Stolen land or promised land? Maybe prepare to serve Yahweh by committing treason and in so doing save the saints and enter the promised land. That's some radical things to think about. And now you're all nervous. But Why? Why are you even nervous? Oh, he's talking about treason. But think about this further. What's defined as treason is often guided by political, immoral relativity. What do you mean, Matthew? Well, how about then you decide to go and blow up a hotel with 91 people in it? Is that treason? Should you go to jail? 91 people and it'll blow up the hotel. Sounds pretty treasonous to me. No. No. Not at all. That's prime minister material. What we'll make you the prime minister of Israel if you do something like that. Right? Of course. Menachem Begin, that's what they did with him. He blew up the King David Hotel and killed 91 people, and he became Prime Minister of Israel. It's not treason, it's politics. If you're on the right side of politics, and if you're a friend of the New World Order, that's not treason. You see, truth is crazier than fiction. Treason, according to the US Constitution, is an act of war against the United States. Listen. An act of war against the United States or any aid or any aid and comfort given to enemies of the United States. That's treason according to the United States Constitution. If you give any act or comfort To enemies of the United States. So hang on a minute. So by definition, if you open up our borders and provide welfare and safe harbour to Syrian Mohammedans, you're committing treason according to the US Constitution with the interpretation of Thomas Jefferson and his Barbary Wars of 1801 to 1805. So in fact, all of these politicians right now are in fact committing treason treason they are opening up the borders to mohammedan syrian refugees that are enemies of the united states and providing them with comfort and aid are they not this is treason I know people are like, no, you're outrageous. No, it's outrageous. The whole thing, this is an outrageous world that we live in. My goodness gracious me. Verse 25, are we really going to represent the stolen land or are we looking to the promised land? Because treason, man, all based upon political, Immoral relativity, right? You can be prime minister of Israel if you blow up a hotel with 91 people on it in it. Kill them. Blow up a hotel. Kill 91 people. That makes you quality material to lead. Or you can just open up the borders, let in Syrian Mohammedans, provide them welfare, comfort, and aid, that's okay too. Well, not according to Thomas Jefferson, not according to the interpretation during the time of the Barbary Wars, and not according to the U.S. Constitution. These people should be in prison. In prison. And executed. the law isn't about righteousness and truth. It is Satan's playground. And the law is about the law. We have to pray for our protection. And we have to pray for his righteousness which transcend us from this fallen world. Because our hope is not in the courts of men. If Yahushua suffered what he suffered at the judgment seat of men, then it's through prayer and supplication that we must go in these days, truly. Verse 25 is a sobering verse for sobering days, don't you think? Rehab finds herself in the hall of faith because she committed treason against diabolical despots. Delivering the disciples of Joshua from destruction. For as the body, verse 26, without the ruach is dead, so emunah, faith, without mitzvot is dead also. Those without the ruach will be lining femur coffins. They will be. That's what's on the horizon. You've seen them, those black femur coffins that they're bringing out. And those with faith and works will be shepherded, shepherded to safety by the Ruach HaKodesh. Yahweh is the great judge. And he will sift the wheat. And we will be the ones that will be refined as through fire where everybody else will be burned to chaff if they do not have the salvation of Yahusha. And then they start producing the works that demonstrate that they truly are justified. That's what Yaakov's talking about. But he's also talking about us having the kind of faith that Rehab had, that you don't choose the stolen land, but you choose the promised land because ultimately we have a destination. And we only get there together, not singularly, not individually, but together as a kadosh nation, a holy nation, encompassed and protected by the royal law of liberty in the Malkitzedic anointing and the Malkitzedic priesthood. Yaakov, too, is power-packed, is it not? I know I went a little off-center there on the law of liberty and we were talking about Leo Liberty and whatnot. But I think that, you know, kind of ties in with what's going on with the crazy stuff in the transgender agenda, which I think is outrageous that people would put that up because ultimately it's all about this treasonous, treasonous acts that are going on in this country by treasonous men hiding behind the law, which is just the law. People are starting to see that, and as Yahweh's saints raise up in these days, they are getting stronger and stronger, and that scares them because 2016, his people are coming together. What the, f- the future has in store, we do not know, but we do know that there are persecutions coming. And that we need to have our faith deep down inside. That when everything's stripped away, that we're able to stand. Amen? Amen. Questions, comments, anything at all? Yes. Yeah. You have to hit it on the bottom. The microphone, that is. Okay,
1: it was talking about, you were talking about the teaching of a, a, the kind of that one-time forgiveness sin from the Pharaoh. You know, what's interesting about that is who do we know that, believe, that really started this one-time baptism thing was the Catholic Church, and who's the head over them? It's the Pope. The Pope comes from the worshipers of Mithras who called their leader the pa- Papa, meaning Father, and that's why the Messiah said, call no man Father. He didn't say it because the Catholics didn't exist yet. Why would he say that? It's because the worshippers of Mithras were doing that, but my point is: is there Mithras was the sun god, and they got and where did the sun god worshippers come from? They got that from Egypt. Pharaoh was worshipped as the sun god, and then he said that same concept. You know, repent once. You know, all can and the, and that sun deity, so called, is Satan showing himself in all the rains, doing the same thing. He, he doesn't change. He just changed his mask. Same man,
0: oh, yeah. different
1: mask. That's Which it.
0: Exactly when you look at Attis, you know. Attis looking out upon the harbor of New York, just a different mask. And if you remove that mask, it's male. Yep. It really is. It's crazy.
1: Well, that really is their law of liberty. It's come on in, do whatever you want. You know, and you, you see through the how the history books. I forget the exact quote when they're talking about the the poor, welcome in the poor, and all that. Well, that's not really what we're supposed to be looking to. Is some statue who's welcome you in? We're supposed to be looking to the Messiah who is, says, "Come to me, all of you, labor burden." <laughs> yeah,
0: I'll give you rest. That statue is well, not giving you rest. <laughs> you can do anything but truth. Though. And if you actually look at her feet, she was shackled, shackled. His feet shackled. So it is, I do believe, there are consequences when you bring an idol into your nation. And we're seeing those consequences played out 130 years to the very year. Isn't that 1886? I think that's when that uh, idol was brought into the harbor there. So Abba, we thank you that Abba, that we have the word that secures our soul. The word that became flesh and dwelt among us, Abba. We pray for your brachot, your brachot upon your people. And Abba, we ask that you would truly be a God for us, Abba Yehoah, a God for us in these days and these hours. And Abba, we thank you for the hope that is within us in Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. Amen.